Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello everyone, I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Lawyer View is Brett Turnbull. He's a very talented trial lawyer and founder of Turnbull, Holcomb, and Limon, PC in Birmingham, Alabama. Hopefully I got that last name correct. His practice focuses on representing the severely injured all across the United States. He's got a pretty large bias I'm going to read a bit to you guys so you get a little bit of an understanding of Brett's background. He's got more than a decade of successful courtroom experience in complex litigation, including truck cases, parts liability, automotive defects, pediatric burns, traumatic brain injury, and nursing home malpractice. He's licensed in four states and has taken 70 jury trials to verdict. In the last few years alone, he's received jury verdicts of $21.5 million, $9 million, and $5 million in product liability and medical malpractice cases. When he goes before a jury, he realizes he has one job, to get justice for his client by proving their claims and guiding the jury to award a fair and reasonable verdict. Brett has won national recognition for his trial advocacy skills. That leadership track continued throughout his legal career. Today, he gives back to his profession by serving in leadership positions with the Alabama Association for Justice, Alabama State Bar, and Southern Trial Lawyers Association. Brett received his undergraduate degree from the University of Alabama, so I assume he's a Roll Todd fan, and his JD from Cumberland School of Law, Samford University. He is AV preeminent rated by Martindale Hubble, recognized by the National Trial Lawyers as a top 40 under 40 trial lawyer and a super lawyer. Brett, welcome on to Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I really appreciate it. So before we get into uh, the meat of this, uh, let's talk a little bit of personal stuff. So are you a, are you an Alabama fan? I, I am. I grew up an Alabama fan um, all the way through, so it was pretty easy. I, I finished school at Alabama and, um, and have been a fan ever since. I, I take my son to games, and we have a big time. Well, it's been fairly easy of late, I think, to be a Bama fan, considering all the uh, the success. I went to uh, Florida State for law school and was there when they won their first national championship, and they had a, a pretty good run after that. And since then, it's been yeah, since Bobby Bowden's uh, departure, it's been it's been a rough going. So I, I'm envious that you've got uh, that team to to root for because their success is pretty incredible. It's been it's been an amazing ride. You know, when I was in college there, we weren't very good. So it's it's been it's been a lot of fun since. 
Yeah, I went to uh, UCF undergrad, and UCF's had a pretty amazing rise to national prominence. And remembering when I was there, when they were Division One AA and playing schools you'd never heard of, to to now going to games and you know us playing big names and beating Auburn a few years ago in uh, in the Sugar Bowl or no Peach Bowl. Uh, pretty pretty awesome to to see that uh, you know change over time from. Uh, basically obscurity to, to national prominence is pretty cool. Yeah, anytime Auburn gets beat, I'm happy. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I figured that would be a good thing for you, right? So uh, I know that you've got four kids and cherish your family time. I'm, I'm curious, how do you balance a busy trial practice and working on cases all over the country with your family life? Well, you know, it, it has been difficult at times, obviously. Uh, it's not always easy, but I can tell you that my, my primary commitment was to uh, when I was when I am in Birmingham with my family uh, to really try to be there, be present, and realize that you know when I'm away, there's there's only so much I can do about that. But you know what I try to do is make sure I don't come home and then and then sort of work the whole time. Then too, that's the big thing. I guess now with technology too, it's it's a little bit different. Yeah, I remember, you know, in the past it was harder to connect with your family when you're out of town or on the road. Now with Zoom, you know, you you get that that opportunity that you used to not get. I, I my son uh, graduated last year from college and has moved out out to Austin. So now, you know, we connect uh, using FaceTime. It's nice being able to have that technology connection that you know in the past you just had a phone call and now you can actually. You know, interact over video. It's kind of kind of nice to get that. Yeah, it's changed things for sure. It's also changed the necessity for travel because of all the things we do with uh, with litigation differently, for sure. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to talk with you about how you wound up going to law school, since I noticed your undergraduate majors were not your typical pathway to law school. What made you decide to go to law school? And then, after you graduated from law school, how did you decide to make plaintiff personal injury? trial law your career? Well, I admit my uh, path to, or my, my reason for going to law school is not a very good one. Um, I was actually going to do international finance. And at the time I was coming out of college, I took a job in Germany. Um, I majored in German as well. And uh, with the largest accounting firm in the United, in the world, uh, and they went under right after I took the job. And so I took the last bar exam they let me take and frankly just had to regroup and consider law school like a three-year opportunity to do that. Uh, and and look, where, look where everything ended up. Yeah, and so then how did you, how did you decide once you graduated from law school to, to get into plaintiff personal injury law and make that your life's work? But yeah, I mean, obviously, early on, I figured out the trial was something that I enjoyed uh, during law school. Um, I had an opportunity to work at some firms over the, over the summers and kind of figure out what I didn't want to do. Uh, and, you know, honestly, had an opportunity to work for a, a prominent uh, personal injury firm here in Birmingham. And basically, had I, you know, I just got to know some clients during the, during the course of the summer and see how it was affecting their lives. And, you know, that coupled with the opportunity to try cases, which is what I enjoy doing, uh, led me straight into plaintiff's work. And I've done it from day one and haven't ever stopped. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. My, my path to law school was like yours. I didn't intend to go to law school and I actually went on the advice of, of an advisor I trusted very much because I was a psychology major undergrad and really couldn't do anything but go on to grad school. And he suggested, well, maybe think about law school. I think you would I think it would be a good fit. And he was he was right. 
But, you know, it's funny that you talk about your experiences leading you to the plaintiff side, you know, wanting to go to trial and, and get that experience because I went to the defense side out of law school. And, you know, for me, it was a lot of grunt work and you don't really get what you want to get, which is really that that experience that you can only get if you're thrown into the fire pretty much on the on the plaintiff side, because most defense firms take you along pretty slowly and you're doing a lot of a lot of grunt work before you actually get to try a case. So it's kind of cool that you were able to take that path and see that that was what, you know, ultimately you were meant to do. Yeah, there's no question about it that every day that goes by uh, in your practice, if you're not having an opportunity to get reps uh, and to be in a position where you can, you know, there's no better way uh, to, to experience it than to do it. it. Experience is required. It's the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what is behind your passion for trial law and being in the courtroom? Well, to start with, when I began my practice, uh, I would say that my passion for and my reason for being a trial lawyer is because somebody wins and somebody loses. You know, as an athlete, um, as a part of, part of who I was, as part of my DNA, and, and when you wake up in the morning, you know, it's, they always say it's not what motivates you, it's what excites you. And, um, you know, frankly, the win and loss and, and the opportunity for every case to be the beginning of a new case and to have an ending was, was vital. Over time, you know, that's changed dramatically. The more uh, catastrophic my, my, you know, the injuries and, and the magnitude of the cases in terms of how it affects human beings and my clients, uh, coupled with, you know, the fact that oftentimes they're the underdog, those things just add to it very much. But I, I would say that the human side at this point in my career is really what drives me, for sure. That's good. That's a good segue into what I was going to ask you, which is about a quote that uh, I'll read. You said, the thing that I enjoy most about my job is that I get to take up the part of the underdog and stand up for those who've been wronged. There's more to this job than just money, and that feels good. So I'm curious, you know, what, what, what's behind all that? What drives you to help people who've been wronged? Well, I think about it like this. You know, there are a lot of people who go to work every morning and they're punching the clock, right? I mean, it's, and, 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 you know, look, I, I understand not everyone, we're the lucky ones, right? We're the lucky ones. Um, and by that, what I mean is there are a lot of people who, if they're in finance or in their banking, whatever it might be, if they go to bed with more money than they woke up with, then it was a good day. Look, we're all working for money, of course, right? I mean, we're not, we're not doing this all for free, but at the same time, if we have the byproduct of being able to help people that that really can't help themselves in the circumstances that they're in, life-altering events, and then to have you know uh, folks on the other side who, who basically did it to them not be willing to be accountable, to be able to change all that is, is really, what, it's really what's exciting, for sure. Yeah, that's interesting, because I was gonna ask you about that, that idea of being lucky, because you're getting that opportunity to help people are going through a very tough time come out the other side of it. And that's something that I, I routinely talk to our team about since we get a similar opportunity and um, having you know been in an accident myself and been through all that that entails, I, I do believe firmly in what we do and the good that it brings. So I, I'm, I would like to hear you talk a little bit more about what is most important part of that for you and for your law firm, that, that opportunity. It's 
possibly the greatest opportunity that we can have professionally, that you actually represent someone and take their part um, when they are unable to help themselves. And the fact that they empower you with that, the fact that they're, that they're willing to tap you to be the person that has the opportunity and to do that is, is, you know, if you really sit down and think about it, especially for these people, again, I, I the case, you know, you know, my firm, we believe in all of our cases very much. You know, we're, we're obviously very fortunate that, you know, we have the opportunity to decide what we want to work on, frankly, and I realize that. And I also feel very fortunate for that as well. Um, but with that said, there is, there is such an honor to be in that position. You know, we, I think maybe, maybe as a profession, we take it, you know, as time has gone by, we take that a little bit for granted, or, or maybe we sort of don't think about the magnitude of, of the term being someone's counselor, being their representative, um, you know, stand up in the, in the well of a courtroom when somebody's sitting there in a wheelchair and they don't get the opportunity to talk to the jury. Um, and that's that's a very powerful thing. Yeah, it's also something I, I talk a lot about. Our team is this responsibility, and and you know what an opportunity is that we have to improve somebody's life by helping them after they've experienced something catastrophic. I mean, you guys, you guys are the catalyst for that, and then we get to piggyback on that by you know whether it's reducing a lien protecting their Medicare eligibility, their Medicaid and, and SSI eligibility, or helping them put together a plan for their settlement proceeds. All those things are things that really do positively impact people. And we actually track the number of lives that we positively impact and keep that as a stat for our team because our vision is to impact as many lives as we possibly can in a positive way. So like you, I. I that's such a, a critical part of I think our success is that we believe in that because if you if you view it more as a job it's it's different than when you view it as a mission and and a passion and there's a reason for why you do what you do yeah I mean to to hit to hit on that point the reality is that money's not going to bring someone back. It's not going to, you know, there's no time machine, as I always say. You know, I don't have the, the ability to, unfortunately, to take us back there and, and fix it. Um, but money's not a big deal until you don't have any, okay? And, you know, for these people who have needs and, and things that, that, you know, that, that are, I mean, frankly, just fundamental things in life, you know, the different, I always tell juries that what we really are asking is for them to compensate in a way that equals the difference between what is versus what should have been right and you know oftentimes that's kind of lost in translation i think for all of us and even though i get it you know the only thing we can ask for is money uh, the fact that we can hand that to you guys and when i work with you and know that my client's going to be taken care of and that things are going to be like they should be and that it doesn't end with me that it, that it continues on um, i mean that's what this is all about for sure i mean it's what it's all about yeah, it's a great point. I, I mean, there's certainly no amount of money that I would trade for the day what I was like the day before my accident to what I am like today, because it, it definitely is fundamentally life changing and altering when you suffer injuries that can never be undone. And but you know the system is what it is, and and that that money though does help. It does take care of people instead of them being relegated to maybe you know, a system that doesn't meet their needs, like a system like Medicaid. And, 
And that's where a lot of times, you know, I, I talk to people that don't really understand our legal system and how it how it functions and view people that get millions of dollars as almost lottery winners. And I'm like, you don't understand, you know, somebody that's getting millions of dollars probably has, you know, tens of, of millions of dollars in future medical expenses alone. Forget about all the pain and suffering, you know, that, that none of this is a lottery. It is, it is, you know, it's an unfortunate situation that the only way we have to address is financially and the economic realities of, of someone that's been seriously injured are are very difficult and challenging because there's never enough money typically in a settlement to cover every dollar that they're going to need so either way they're going to need some type of government assistance whether it's medicare or medicaid so you know the idea of lotteries is is really important to me it's yeah it's it's for people who don't understand <clears throat> that's the only way either they don't understand or they have some other angle where they benefit from from those type of terms because i got news for you there isn't in a single person that i've represented in the last 15 years who had a, a result in compensation that was in the millions of dollars that anybody would trade places for so for them to say that you know i, I bet if we put a folding table out front i say this to juries too you know i guarantee we wouldn't have any takers all right and that's the bottom line so I totally agree with you. I, I, I think it's a current. I think that it's ridiculous. I think that it's the type of things that, uh, unfortunately, the the insurance industry and some of these other the corporate world have you know planted into heads and attempted to to sway things. So, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, from my research and and I know from past discussions, you're with a pretty large, well-known personal injury firm. Uh, in Alabama before starting your own firm. What's the primary reason for you deciding ultimately to start your own firm? And what is it that attracted you to the idea of having your own firm? Well, I think as trial lawyers, um, you know, obviously we have, there are certain characteristics that I think kind of thread through the majority of us. And, and I think that one of those is, is entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, and, you know, to me, to have the willingness to lose and lose with your client in the way that we're, our, obviously our monetary deals are structured, at some point in your life, if you know that you're able and that you're capable and you're an entrepreneur at, at heart, uh, it's just very, I, I always felt like I would look back on my life and wish that I, you know, that was one of the things that I wished, I, I believe that I would have wished that I had done if I didn't, okay? And so for me, it was really always in the cards and, you know, the firm that I left is a fantastic firm. I think the world of them, I still work on cases with them, but, um, but it was just something I had to do for, for, for me. <laughs> I get that completely. <laughs> my, my parents uh, are and were entrepreneurs. That's, that's why how, how we moved to Florida was they, they opened a business here in Orlando when I was 10 years old and always thought at some point, you know, I probably would do my own thing, which is what I, I wound up doing just because there is something about that and getting to chart a course for yourself that, you know, you, you can't do in, in other settings. So completely get that. Um, so I want to switch gears and talk to you a little bit about something that I've, I've asked every single guest that's uh, been on the podcast about, and that's with catastrophic cases. What are the top three things you do to empathize with a client to tell their story to the jury, focusing on what they're left with after being injured. Because I think that that, that you've sort of touched on a little bit, but I, I, I'd like for you to elaborate on, on those 
key things that help you get across to the jury why they they need to rule in favor of your client and compensate them for their injuries? Three things. Well, the, the first thing that I will say is that unless your client uh, is able to tell their own story in the event that they're able to, that they're still with us or capable of giving testimony in the case. Um, they have to be prepared in a certain way that, that is a part of the methodology that I believe in, and that's that they have to be, um, we call it emotional congruence, okay? Uh, and what that requires is for them to be able to actually be trained in a way to image. Um, things and that are, you know, everything in our mind is stored in pictures and images. That's what one of my very, very good friends taught me, you know, years ago. And the reality is they have to be able to access the, the, their memories. They have to be able to access things. And those are oftentimes repressed, right? They're, they're very painful things. You know, the event that took place that changed their life forever or that took their loved one or whatever the case might be. So the first thing is to, to, to prepare the witness in a very particular way that allows them the ability to reach back down into those memories and um, and to more or less, unfortunately, you know, we have to kind of dig, dig it up. Um, the second thing is that I like for other people to prepare my witness, okay, um, and I like to be in the room because it gives me the ability to image with them. It gives me the ability to access with them and to use what, what we like to call the unconscious processing um, so that I can be congruent with my own client. Now, why does that matter? That matters because if I'm emotionally congruent with my own client, then it gives me a significant advantage to be emotionally congruent during opening statement, during closing argument, and of course, during the direct examination of my client, all of those things. Um, it gives the ability to, to basically go in there, but, that, but why is all that important? That's important, and this is, this is sort of the third thing, is because if you're in there, and the client's in there, then the jury goes in there, and it's physiological. Um, and, you know, again, it's not like a golden rule type of thing where you're asking them to imagine. You can't ask them to imagine. That doesn't work anyway, by the way. Just, I mean, it, it, telling people to imagine doesn't do it. You use certain um, just absolutely physiological human um, different types of things in our brains. And when you go in, the client goes in, they go in with you. And that's how you tell their story. It's interesting because we, we try to bring to life for our team client stories. And, you know, since we don't have typically access directly to the injury victim, we will use pictures and accounts and details of what has happened to that person so that people understand you know, and can empathize and understand the importance of our mission that I talked about. So that's that was one of the reasons why I, I started asking that question because I was curious about, you know, the process that that our clients use to get that empathy, um, but also because it's such an important part about, you know, how how we run this company, which is really all about that being able to try and understand the importance of what we do and, and how we help people. I would, I would highly recommend, um, we can talk about that some more, but I, I think that having the ability to have um, the right people videoing, but not just videoing, but also, you know, asking the, the questions in a certain way. Um, and, you know, I have trials on Corbview Network, and I think 
uh, that can be, you know, streamed and watched. Um, and, you know, I think that you'll see that having, having either the client or the client's family be able to go back in there um, is an emotionally connect, it, it, it connects things in a very emotional way, in a very real way that physiologically affects uh, the listener. It's a great idea. So I, um, I wanted to talk about your results because you've gotten some incredible results. And uh, I wanted to ask about a couple of cases that have defined your career. First, um, there was a case that I read about in Los Angeles against a car manufacturer after a defect caused a crash, killing your client's wife and two small children. I know how hard it is to go up against a large corporation who's got unlimited resource. I'm curious what the single most important thing about a case like that is which helped define your career? Well, from a career defining perspective, I had, you know, this is this is sort of a personal thing. Um, it's really less about the case, but, you know, obviously it was in Los Angeles, so it was far from home. <laughs> uh, it was the type of case that the room was full of people um, you know, and it was, it was my responsibility to stand up and, and begin opening statement. I knew from past experiences and from my past results that I could do it, but to do it on that stage, uh, with that type of, you know, competition, um, and to perform in a way that I wasn't just being reactive. I wasn't playing scared. I wasn't, I mean, I was nervous because any human being would, it's the natural condition, human condition but I was able to perform in a way that I was proud of and that I was able to, to do a great job for my client, at least in, in my eyes. I was, I, I, basically to be able to perform under that type of um, overall pressure was a, a new thing. And I knew I could do it, but it was nice to be able to, to actually you know, stick the landing. I'm curious about managing emotions in a case like that. I, I would imagine based on just the facts of of who was killed in that accident, that there must have been an incredible amount of emotion and also like a, a heaviness on your shoulders of knowing, you know, what you were having to, you know, tell the jury about and the impact and just all that. I just can't imagine that wasn't incredibly weighty. Yeah, let's face it, in a case like that, one of the things that you try to block out is the same thing I used to do in sports, right? I mean, it's like I didn't want to think about throwing interceptions. Um, I wanted to think about throwing touchdowns, but it's also the human condition to ask yourself, what happens if this goes poorly? Where does that put me? Where does that not just put me, but more importantly, where does it put my client? And, you know, if that's why a lot of cases settle and I, and I understand why they do, I'm not critical of that. We just didn't have that option in this case. Yeah. Yeah, not, not atypical in a case like that, for sure. Um, the second case um, that I wanted to ask you about was a case in Alabama where you represented the family of a college student who died as a result of a misdiagnosis in an urgent care clinic. Um, I know medical malpractice cases are typically very tough to litigate, expensive, and also tough to win. So what was special to you about getting that verdict for the family in that particular case? That case was particularly special and, and you know, all my clients are special, but that case was, was particularly special um, because it was really hard for me to work on that case because my clients reminded me of like me. You know, reminded, she reminded me of my kid. 
and it was hard and um that was really hard and it was a, a ter a very a notoriously very 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 difficult plaintiff's venue and people thought i was crazy for turning down the offers that had been made and trying the case but i believed in the case and i believed in what we were doing um and i just I don't know, I guess I could have been told, everybody could have been right, and the jury could have come back despite all that uh, against us, but um, I was really glad that we tried that case, actually, because, um, you know, they lost their 19-year-old daughter, and I, I don't think they would have, it was, it was almost kind of like they would have never forgiven themselves if they hadn't at least been through that process. Yeah, I mean, there's, there is certainly something to the closure of all of that with that kind of a, going through all of that. And feeling like you you actually did get justice served you know that's i think one of those important aspects in certain cases they're just cases that there is some benefit to go in a trial in that case it most certainly was um you know they kind of going back to the thing we talked about earlier you know their, their daughter wasn't going to be brought back um you know i hate to say this because any client anytime a client ever tells me it's not about the money I, that kind of worries me uh, because I think we all know the type, but they said it and they meant it, and um, you know, and, and they followed through, and I saw what they went through, and I just, you know, it's one of those that I couldn't help but think about, you know, being my daughter, and my family and my life for, throughout the entirety of the case, and I still talk to um, my client. I mean, on a weekly basis, we're kind of we're, we became friends. Yeah, not all that unusual. I, I wanted to ask you about trial structure because I know you're very passionate about trial advocacy, um, and I know that it, it is something that um, you're passionate about. So what is it and why are you part of it? Trial structure is um, a business that I started with five of my friends right before the, right before the COVID shutdown. Um, we have all been instructors together uh, in trial advocacy and we went out on our own. Um, the business itself is, it has several different functions. One of which is that we do consulting work to um, prepare witnesses with our methodology. Um, we're brought into cases for the purpose of preparing witnesses, also structuring cases, which is our methodology of how we organize information for opening statement, closing argument, and throughout the trial to most effectively um, prosecute the case. Um, and then, of course, we also, as a group, uh, put on uh, programs, you know, uh, CLE programs for uh, trial advocacy and invite lawyers, you know, have lawyers come in and they bring a real case and we structure their case throughout the course of the, of the, uh, the program. But most importantly, you know, I uh, have made a lot of friends that way. I've made a lot of business relationships and co-counsel on a lot of cases um, after having, you know, an opportunity to teach. So as one of the instructors for trial structure, what is the top two or three reasons uh, as to why instructing other trial lawyers about trial advocacy is, is so important to you? You know, I, I think of that song, uh, you ever the country song where the grandfather's got the little girl and they're fishing and she thinks we're just fishing, right? Um, and the grandfather's basically, you know, implying that she didn't understand how much this means to me. So like for me, it's not just the opportunity to give back. That's important. Um, but I'm also, I learn every time I go, every single time. Uh, it also puts me on my feet, which is important. Um, you know, you can't, you can't be a, 
a jujitsu fighter and not be on the floor all the time rolling around, right? So, I mean, it's just part of the deal, but I really do enjoy it. So that is good segue into uh, the next question, which is in your bio for trial structure, it just tickled me. It says you're, you have a Rambo litigation style and like to rip the heart out of the defense's case in the courtroom. Uh, can you talk about that and how you use it successfully to represent your own clients? Yeah, I saw that you put that in there. I, I didn't. Somebody, somebody uh, took some liberties with my trial structure webpage. I guess we'll have to talk about that later. Um, you know what? What I would say is this: as far as the the stylistically from litigation, my my perspective on it is that you know we'll be professional, we'll be courteous, um, we will treat with you know people with respect. However, pressure is what gets us paid. All right. You know the the old adage of you know we're going to all be friends here and. That's not how you get the best value for your cases. So it's not that we have to be mean to each other, but in terms of, you know, pressing buttons in litigation, my philosophy is, you know, bad faith is, is, is real. Uh, we will honor our, if we tell people we're gonna, you know, not take the policy limits after a certain point, we're not going to. Um, and, you know, our, our objective is to put them in such a pressure, pressure point that they, as I say, if they get in the way and settle the case, that's great. But our, but you know, frankly, being a trial lawyer, a big part of that is every case you start at the beginning. You go stick the arrow in the bullseye. You tie a string around and you walk backwards to build a strategy for your case. And so many lawyers, I feel like, are always trying to get to some point in the case where they got their hand out that it it, it, it just wreaks weakness. I just think you're better off building a plan never mentioning settlement. If they bring it up and they want to mediate the case, then the case better be in a position that it can be settled appropriately. And we're going to have demands that are going to be required to be signed off on um, before we're, we're willing to, to come to the table. So I guess maybe uh, my friends at trial structure thought that was Rambo litigation. I just consider it as um, getting my client paid. <laughs> I love that because, you know, the ones thing I've seen and you know been doing this for a long time over 20 years is I have seen lawyers that I feel like didn't know you know what the end was didn't have that in mind when they started and you know ultimately like you said it's more handout at mediation versus you know saying well you know you, you really don't know this case you don't have it valued right and walk out the door when the defense offers something you know that that really isn't anywhere in the ballpark because it seems like that's that's what happens a lot of the time and i think part of that might be of, of how that case happened to be positioned you know pr prior to the mediation yeah i mean i think there are people out there who look at the my sort of my strategy um and that's and that is my strategy make no mistake like that's how i try to if we're going to file a case and we're going to and we're going to believe in it we're going to go that's the way we look at it and i think people think when i talk about this that it's like well brett must just not be in too big a hurry to get the case resolved it's, it's actually just the opposite the more pressure we can mount the less opportunity we have to have meaningless settlement negotiations and time spent that is meaningless and a waste of time and so i like to get a trial date work toward it hard and if we mediate, we're not going to stop litigating, right? Um, because, I, but, but again, I think people, if they were to have a criticism of it, they're like, well, you know, that seems like a very, you know, you must not, you must not be in much of a hurry. And that's just not true. It's, it's the opposite. 
Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And from what I've seen, lawyers that do take that kind of tack typically put enough pressure on the defense that, you know, if it's a case that's going to be settled, it'll get settled in a shorter time frame because of that, that pressure. That's been my experience, you know, if um, and I also believe that there are certain a lot of cases the, the new strategy is that the defense comes to you early and asks whether you want to mediate the case. Well, why are they doing that? Three reasons. One, they want to gather information. Two, they want to have your client thinking about money for a long period of time in a way that when they get broke or when they have a tough time, they know that that's kind of dangling out there. All right. It's a way to sort of massage down the number. And number three, as far as I'm concerned, um, they want to, you know, they want to put it in a position where, you know, they, 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 they try to make it sound like they're trying to settle the case. And that maybe that's true. But if you know you're not going to take a low offer, then there's really no reason to go. And all it does is, it, to me, it traumatizes your client. That's my opinion. Yeah, because they think that there's a possibility of getting resolution when really it, it seems to be more of a fishing expedition and or, you know, like you said, putting pressure on that client financially to think that they, you know, there's dollars that are going to come sooner when it may take a whole lot longer to really get the value extracted from the defendants because, you know, there needs to be more discovery for them to understand why they're going to lose a trial or they have a huge risk at trial. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not going to tell you there haven't been cases where things went worse for me. I mean, there are times where that happens, but sure. large majority of the time you find information that they wanted to hide, that they were trying to bury. We're very aggressive with our, um, you know, with our motions to compel and our good faith letters. You know, there's nothing to see here. It's not nothing to see here. There's too many times that I've been told that when I got, when I said, well, I'm just, this is out of an abundance of caution. We're going to file the motion. We'll get an order. And all of a sudden, waha, there you go. Yeah. Uh, briefly, can you highlight a couple of important points about the trial lawyer associations that you're involved with, like Alabama Association for Justice, Southern Trial Lawyers, the State Bar, and why you're part of those organizations? Um, I'm a I'm a part of Texas Trial Lawyers, Georgia Trial Lawyers, Alajay, Alabama Trial Lawyers, um, and the National and Southern Trial Lawyers as well. Uh, and look, uh, there's the money part where you where you pay and, and uh, they help our practice I mean, they help keep us open. I mean, in Alabama, we're always under attack. Texas just took a major, a major flurry of attack. Um, so there's that part. And then there's obviously the parts that are great. It's the camaraderie. It's meeting new friends, meeting new people, new business contacts. It's just a great way to get together. And, and you know, I, I actually really like trial lawyers personally. Um, my dad's a doctor. I'm not sure he, when I was growing up, he felt that way, but you know, I, I like him. Agreed. I'm, I'm member of FJA and AAJ and been a member of a lot of these different organizations over the years. I mean, what I find really cool, and I think trial structures somewhat of an offshoot of that is just the way plaintiff lawyers help each other. You know, I see it on the listservs all the time, you know, typically plaintiff personal injury practices are smaller groups of lawyers. So having that larger group of lawyers, which basically is is almost like being a part of a big firm because you've got all these people with resources, people that have done the research on a legal issue that you might be dealing with or, you know, dealing with some type of discovery related issue or whatever. Somebody's always willing to help out. The 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 profession is just so cool about that sort of aspect of it that, you know, seeing that in the trial lawyer associations is 
it is really nice to see that. I cannot imagine where I would be. Um, I mean, by that, what I mean is I can only imagine that left to my own devices and without the help of so many, it, it would be an entirely different different world. And, you know, and I say that, um, you know, it took me, it's, I've had mentors since day one and they've been kind and they've been good to me and it hasn't always been beneficial to them. And it's one of the things that I try to remember every day when I wake up is that, you know, to, to much is given, much is owed. And, and that's, you know, I, I really believe that that's a huge part of what makes, has, has basically allowed us, the, given us the ability to stand up to a lot of these corporate, you know, these companies and the, and the insurance companies. So that's a good segue into this question, which is really all about mentorship. And I, I'll limit it somewhat, but you can you can answer it however you like. It, what is one tip you would give to other trial lawyers that's been part of your secret to success in the practice of plaintiff personal injury law? Never stop learning. And I have to say that uh, there was a time, Jason, there was a time, I remember it, five years ago. Now I'm a 15, I've been practicing 15 years, okay? So um, five years ago, I had tried about 10 cases a year, most of them, you know, car wrecks and whatnot, for about two years in a row. And I had my shtick down, buddy. I thought I was hot stuff. And I was winning the majority of the time, not nearly what I could have been now that I know what I, you know, now that I know more. And I got to a place where I kind of uh, was just winging it. It's the truth. I, I got complacent. I decided I was hot stuff. Um, and for one reason or another, I went to Jacksonville, Florida and saw some people uh, who I now own, you know, Alejandro Blanco, who I now own trial structure with. And I went, okay. I, I, I was just blown away. And it was a lesson to me to continue to learn. And I still feel that way today. And the last five years have been, it's been, like, you know, a complete meteoric type of, you know, rise in the sense of uh, my success. And also, and I, and I attribute all of that to mentors and to continuing to try to learn and do new things. Great advice. Uh, wholeheartedly buy into it and constantly do things outside of synergy and outside of my law practice to try and get better as a leader and personally and, you know, as well as professionally. It's, it's, if you're if you're not learning, then you're just going backwards. So great, great advice. Um, so I know your firm is kind of unique, and you you've got uh, cases that you work on outside of Alabama, co-counseling cases. Um, I'm just curious about what your your plans are for your future for your law firm. Um, right now, my law firm has an office in Birmingham, Alabama. It has an office in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we actually do just as much work in Georgia as we do in Alabama, if not more. Um, we just hired our third lawyer there. Uh, we're, I'm licensed in Texas. We're licensed in about 13 states. We practice all the United States. Um, we, we have intentions of, of continuing to grow our Texas practice um, and are working on a lot of Texas cases currently. Um, cases in the Midwest, but it's everything that's personal injury, um, everything that's catastrophic injury. Um, you know, we, we work on automotive product liability, product liability period, industrial accidents, nursing home, medical malpractice, obviously trucking, you know, really pretty much anything personal injury. Uh, and we do it all over the country. Uh, my plans for the firm is we're going to go into likely open some more offices. 
Uh, and the reason for that is that we can be a steward of, of that market and, and um, work with the lawyers there. Um, I try to be a two-way street. There are cases that don't really fit the profile of cases that we're looking for, and we refer a lot of cases out as a result of that. Um, that are sort of not, we're not really set up to handle volume. And so we're really built around, you know, cases that are, you know, perceived to be million dollars and up and, uh, you know, all the way up to the top. There, there are also times where we're brought in just to try cases at the end, um, which is important, you know, an important piece of the puzzle. Um, so that's what we're doing right now. I'm excited. We're growing fast, but most importantly, uh, I feel just completely I'm just blessed that we have so many great cases in here that we can believe in, wonderful clients that we have the opportunity to represent and continue to move this thing forward. So last question wrapping up, and uh, I, I do ask this of every guest, and admittedly it's self-serving, but curious as to what types of issues are arising commonly in cases when you're settling them, whether it's liens or Medicare or Medicaid preservation or, you know, trust or how the client manages the recovery. What are the most important issues that are coming up today in your cases? Uh, you, you just covered it. I mean, and it's all of the above. Uh, the ability to have my clients uh, keep their Medicaid is a major piece of the puzzle. And you guys are, are fantastic at that. Uh, managing my clients' money after I'm after I shake their hand and they walk out my do the door of my office is an amazing. Um, it's amazing to know that they're taken care of. Um, and you know, you guys come in and all of the things that you just mentioned are things that we see on the back end of of these cases, primarily the bigger ones. But you know what? It, it could be anything. And you know, lien resolution is another. Uh, I was blown away with, uh, it was like, you know, we've always negotiated our own liens. We don't really need help with that. Uh, and then we gave you guys a few cases and I was like, okay, well, obviously, obviously my clients are going to benefit from that. So I'm seeing all those issues arise. I think that, um, there's between, you know, I do a lot of brain injury, which obviously requires a lot of special needs, trust help. Um, and you know, obviously we have the Medicaid trust and the things that you and I are always working on, but, uh, no, I think all the things that you mentioned are, coming up and you know in a multitude of different ways and here's the other thing I don't want to have to do those things I don't know how to do them so if I can hand it off to you and your team and y'all just take the ball and go with it that's great and that's exactly what's happened so far yeah expecting a trial lawyer to be an expert in everything is like asking a trial lawyer to you know do guardianship work do estate work you know do do things that you know as a lawyer you you do have other lawyers or experts that come in and do and that's why it's so important i think that you know we we fill that void in in you know the trial lawyers team is is having that kind of you know resource that can make sure that all those issues are dealt with in a way that the lawyer can close his face, close his case compliantly and doesn't have to worry about, you know, whether there was something missed when that, when that file goes to storage. So great, great answer. Really, uh, the perfect answer. Uh, so in wrapping up, um, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Sure. Uh, by phone, it's 205-831-5040. Um, again, 205-831-5040. B. Turnbull at TurnbullFirmFIRM.com works as well. Um, and again, we have offices in Birmingham, Atlanta, uh, soon to be Texas, and practice all over the United States of America in, uh, in personal injury. 
And for our listeners, we'll put all that information uh, on the webpage for this particular episode. So if you need to reach out to Brett, you'll have that at your fingertips. And thanks for tuning in to Traveler Review today. And thank you to Brett for being my guest. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to Trialor Review. You can find more at trialorreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.